My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you're listening to the Trainfully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't done so already, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. If you become a member of my inner circle, you get full access to all my performance rehab and training programs. All my programs are follow along programs, which means all you have to do is hit play and follow along in the video with me. You don't have to try to memorize anything. You just follow the video. And these aren't just random exercises thrown together just to make you tired. Okay. My programs are evidence-based and I've carefully designed them to improve your movement quality, increase your injury resilience and enhance your performance. So head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The handle is at trainfully. My YouTube page is dedicated to sports medicine and performance training for golfers, so it can really help you out with injuries as well as performance enhancement. So again, subscribe today. The handle is at trainfully. All right, so this episode is about injury prevention. We all know injuries suck, right? And they especially suck when they happen during the season and they either shut your season down or they hurt your performance, right? It can be very frustrating. And so it would be awesome if we could predict injuries. Because if we could predict injuries, then we could intervene and stop the injury from happening, right? Imagine this. Imagine I could do an assessment on you. And from that assessment, know that you were going to develop a hip labral tear, right? Well, if I knew that, then I could intervene and give you specific exercises to do before you got the hip labral tear so that we could enhance your hip, reduce the stress and strain on your labrum and stop the injury from happening, right? If we could predict injuries, we could intervene and stop them from happening, and as you might guess, there's been a lot of research that's looked into that, how to predict injuries. But prediction's tough. Injuries are very complex and they're very hard to predict. Prediction is tough. I've been doing this now for over 20 years. And I'm not sure I can predict if an athlete is going to get injured. Okay. What I can do is assess the athlete and pinpoint neuromuscular deficits and kinematic asymmetries that increase the risk of injury. And then after identifying those deficits and asymmetries, I can write a program to fix them. Okay. And if we fix the things that increase the risk of injury, then we've reduced injury risk. Right. So Although I can't predict if you're going to become injured, I can improve your injury resilience and make it less likely that you'll become injured. Okay, so then how do we do that? How do I make you more robust and improve your injury resilience 
so that it's less likely that you'll become injured. Well, there's a three-step algorithm that I follow for that. Step one, I need to have a really good understanding about the neuromuscular deficits and kinematic asymmetries that increase the risk of injury. I have to know what those are. Okay. Step two, I need a reliable evidence-based assessment that will help me identify if you have any of these deficits or asymmetries, right? I need an assessment that I can trust. And then step three, if you do have some of these deficits and asymmetries, I need to create a training program to fix them. So let's go through this now, starting with step one, understanding the deficits and asymmetries that increase the risk of injury. Fortunately, we know what many of these are because there's been a lot of research that's looked into this. Okay, so for example, we know that golfers who have more than 10% asymmetry in their hip range of motion bilaterally are at increased risk for hip labral tears. Okay, so that means if I measure the range of motion of your left hip and I measure the range of motion of your right hip, and there's more than 10% difference between your left and right hip, then you're at higher risk for developing a hip labral tear. So I can reduce your risk of developing a hip labral tear by making sure your hip range of motion is within 10% bilaterally. And there's a lot of research that suggests the 10% bilateral symmetry rule applies not just to the hips, but everywhere in the body. And not just to range of motion and range of movement, but also to dynamic joint stability, neuromuscular control, and strength. So that means I can reduce your chances of becoming injured by making sure your range of motion, your dynamic joint stability, your neuromuscular control, and your strength are almost symmetrical bilaterally. Again, ideally within 10%. And there's a lot of research to back this up. In fact, we know from the research that asymmetries greater than 20% are very high risk, okay? So during the assessment, if I find an asymmetry that is greater than 20%, I put that in the red zone, which means I'm going to address it right away, okay? If I find an asymmetry that is between 10 and 20%, I put that in the yellow zone, okay? That means I'm keeping a close eye on it. I'll probably address it, but I'm not going to reduce your practice time or your playing time or alter your performance training to do that. I typically wait until the off season to address asymmetries that are between 10 and 20%. Okay. So back to our algorithm. We know asymmetries greater than 10% increase your risk of injury. So one of the things that I measured during our assessment is limb symmetry. Okay. Another thing I measure during the assessment is movement quality. And that's because movement quality affects how your body attenuates force. So if you have poor movement quality, then your body's not very good at managing force. It's inefficient. And having inefficient movement increases the strain on your muscles and the wear and tear on your joints and connective tissues. It also decreases your force production. So if you have poor movement quality, not only are you more likely to become injured, but you're also less powerful, which means your performance is worse. 
okay? On the other hand, if you have good movement quality, then your body is good at managing force. It's efficient. And having efficient movement reduces the strain on your muscles and the wear and tear on your joints and connective tissues while increasing your force production. So that means if we improve your movement quality, then we'll reduce your risk of injury, increase your force production, and enhance your performance. Okay. But what do I mean by movement quality and how do I measure it? Well, I'll give you an example. One of the movements that I assess for quality is a single leg squat. Okay. So what I'm doing is I'm watching to see if you have to compensate while doing a single leg squat. And an example of a movement compensation that I'm looking for is does your knee move inward? Okay. If your knee moves inward while performing a single leg squat, which is called dynamic knee valgus, then I know you have poor frontal plane stability. And if you have poor frontal plane stability, then I know you're at higher risk for low back injuries, hip injuries, knee injuries, and ankle injuries. In fact, poor frontal plane stability is one of the main drivers of all lower extremity injuries. Okay, so dynamic knee valgus is an example of poor movement quality because it's a movement compensation that indicates you have poor frontal plane stability. Now, we're jumping ahead here to step three of the algorithm, which is programming, but the primary frontal plane stabilizer is the gluteus medius. So that means if you have dynamic knee valgus, we can enhance your frontal plane stability and improve your movement quality by increasing the neuromuscular control and strength of your gluteus medius, right? So that's what I mean by movement quality. And movement compensations are the definition of poor movement quality. And again, that's because they increase tissue stress and they reduce your strength, power, and speed. Okay. Movement compensations also reinforce joint stiffness and they reduce your range of motion. Okay. And if you have reduced range of motion, that means you have fewer movement solutions for your golf swing. And if you have fewer movement solutions for your swing, that will delay your skill acquisition and make it more difficult for you to improve. So movement compensations are bad because they don't give us the best use or utility of our body. That's why we want to identify them and fix them. Now, the good news is, just like with the asymmetries, we know many of the movement compensations that we're looking for because a lot of research has looked into this, right? And we also know that each movement compensation is often the result of specific neuromuscular deficits, just like how dynamic knee valgus is often the result of deficits in neuromuscular control and strength in the gluteus medius. So when I see a movement compensation, I have a really good understanding about the neuromuscular deficits that are associated with it, which means I can create a training program to fix it. Okay, so now back to our algorithm. So we have a really good understanding about the neuromuscular deficits and kinematic asymmetries that increase the risk of injury. So now we need a reliable, 
evidence-based assessment that will help us identify if you have any of these deficits or asymmetries. And again, we're measuring limb symmetry and movement quality, right? We're looking for asymmetries and we're looking for movement compensations. So this is where movement screens come in. A movement screen is just another name for movement assessment. It's a way for us to analyze or evaluate movement. So what we do is we have you perform some basic movements and we analyze how well you perform those movements. And we actually give you a score or a rating based on how well you perform. The theory is the better your score, the lower your risk of injury. Now, the movement screen that most golfers are familiar with is the TPI movement screen, right? But the TPI movement screen was actually developed from another movement screen called the functional movement screen or the FMS for short. And the FMS at one point was really popular in professional sports. In fact, I used it a lot with hockey players. Unfortunately, it turns out that the FMS and the TPI movement screen are just not effective because they're not reliable, okay? Studies keep getting published reporting that the FMS has very low predictive value for measuring risk and that the TPI movement screen is not good at predicting movements in the golf swing. So these tests are not reliable, which means we need a new way to assess golfers. Now, what I've done is I've made my own assessment. And my assessment changes a little bit from person to person, depending on their history and how they present. And you have to remember that a lot of the people that I'm assessing are injured, right? Not always, but quite often. And so I also have to assess their injury site. And so my assessment really does vary quite a bit from person to person. But it would still be I think a really good idea for us to come up with a new reliable assessment for golfers that we could all trust that measures limb symmetry and movement quality. Now, our new assessment will have to meet some requirements, okay? In order for it to be reliable, it's going to have to meet some requirements. First of all, it will have to be both quantitative and qualitative, right? We're measuring limb symmetry. So our assessment will have to be quantitative and we're measuring movement quality. So it will also have to be qualitative, right? It will also need to have ecological validity for golf, which means the movements that we test should approximate the movements in golf. Now, that doesn't mean the movements we test have to look exactly like the golf swing, okay? It means they have to approximate the demands of the golf swing. So then what are the demands of the golf swing? Well, golf requires a unique blend of range of movement, dynamic stability, neuromuscular control, and strength in the spine, hips, and shoulders. Okay. So that means we're looking for an assessment that has ecological validity for golf and measures the quantity, quality, and symmetry of the range of movement, dynamic stability, neuromuscular control, and strength in the spine, hips, and shoulders. And if the assessment is reliable, it will pick up the neuromuscular deficits and kinematic asymmetries that increase the risk of injury in golfers, 
so that we can fix them. All right, so now that we know what we're looking for, where do we find this new assessment? Well, unfortunately, we don't currently have a perfect option for golf, okay? But there is an assessment called the Athletic Movement Index that I think could be a good place for us to start. And much like how the TPI movement screen was developed from the functional movement screen, I think maybe we could start with the Athletic Movement Index and use a Delphi study or an expert consensus statement to develop new evidence-based recommendations for assessing golfers, okay? So then what's the Athletic Movement Index? Well, the Athletic Movement Index was developed by our friend, Dr. Trent Nessler. And in this episode, Trent is gonna tell us all about the Athletic Movement Index and how we can use it to build injury resilience and enhance performance. So guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out either to myself or to Trent if you have any questions. All right, so we have our first returning guest here on the Train Fully podcast, Dr. Trent Nessler. Trent, welcome back, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic and thank you so much for having me back. Well, I'm so happy you're back. Last time you were here, um, we did a deep dive into blood flow restriction training. Yep. Um, we've had some really good feedback from that show. I had a number of people reach out to me. They told me they're going to start doing blood flow restriction training. Somebody reached out to me and said that they've taken your course, actually. Yeah, them. yeah. So I think that episode is going to help a lot of people improve their health and recover from injuries. 100%. This episode is going to do the same because in this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into movement quality and athletic yeah. movement. Yep. We're going to be using the term uh, movement quality here quite a bit. So why don't we start out with you explaining what we mean by movement quality and how you measure or assess it? Yeah, you know, so um, when I think about movement quality, what I think about is biomechanics and specifically how the body moves one joint in relation to another. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a common term that we use in sports medicine called LSI. It's limb symmetry index, and LSI is often used as a measure for um, return to play. So, like after an ACL reconstruction, you know, one of the things they'll do is they'll do like a single leg hop, single leg hop for distance, time hop, things like that. And what they'll do is they will compare performance on that test on your on your surgical side versus your non-surgical side. And then, and then the assumption is, is that if you're within 10% of your non-surgical side, that you're good to go. Um, the problem with LSI is there's some major assumptions that are put into place when you look at LSI. Number one is that there is not deconditioning of the non-operative limb during the course of rehab. And we would all suspect you take an athlete, especially a high-level athlete, and put them in a post-surgical situation, there's going to be a lot of deconditioning. So, so now you're basically comparing the operative side to a deconditioned uh, opposite side. So that's number one. The other big assumption is that the opposite side moves well. And so, so uh, what the studies actually show is that if I do a box jump and I jump down and I land and both knees go in equally and they knock knees, right? I am 100% symmetrical 
but I think we would all agree we're 100% symmetrical of bad movement. So one of the things that that a term that that we've deployed with uh, measuring of movement in some of our research is what is called LQI, which is limb quality index. And that is that is a measure of how the quality of the movement of the limb during the performance of those tests. And so for, for example, in a single leg squat, there's a lot of different factors that we measure. We measure what's the depth of your squat. We measure, um, does your knee go in towards midline term that we call dynamic valgus. So does your knee go in towards midline? How much does it go in towards midline? How fast does it go in towards midline? And then how much does your pelvis move during the course of that? And do you lose balance? Those are all quality measures that are specifically and uh, directly correlated to injury risk. We know, for example, that if you move into a lot of dynamic valgus, when you do a single leg hop at a high rate of speed, that the force that is, that is imparted to the meniscus, the MCL, the ACL is bad and it can cause uh, tear, rupture, et cetera. And so when we, when we talk about movement assessment, we not, we, what I try to tell people is don't just assess the ability to perform the task, but what is the quality of the motion during the performance of that task? Yeah. And, you know, so that's something that um, I found really important is the speed of the valgus. So, and that's something that, you know, I've learned from you and you've actually measured you know, what would be considered yeah. more of an acceptable speed versus yeah. what would be more dangerous, right? So why don't you take us through the athletic movement index and the different tests that you do with that? Yeah, yeah. So the the athletic movement index um, came about after, you know, 18 plus years of research and development. Um, I started with a, uh, I'm dating myself here, but old video camera with uh, beta tapes filming uh, patients in the clinic. I went from that to a technology called Dartfish, which is a slow motion technology, filming people in slow motion and trying to quantify how they move uh, off of off of 2D video, um, realizing that 2D uh, doesn't capture three-dimensional. Um, I then went to uh, working with Microsoft using the Kinect, uh, the Kinect camera that's used with the Xbox. Um, we were analyzing movement using the Kinect gaming technology. Um, and what we found is because it is a gaming technology, it's not super accurate. It's got about a 25% error rate. So then I jumped to uh, a wearable sensor technology. So now what I use is uh, what is called an IMU. It's inertial measurement unit. And it basically has an accelerometer, gyrometer, and magnetometer in. So it detects motion, rotation, acceleration data. So what we do is we place sensors on the individual and then we have them go through a series of motions. And what we're able to do is measure the quality of their movement within 2% of the gold standard, which is a Vicon system. So the, the, uh, we have a standardized protocol that we use called the Athletic Movement Index or the AMI. Um, and the movements are you do a plank, a one minute plank. We do 20 squats. We follow that up with a right side plank and then a left side plank. And the reason that we do um, uh, core testing, studies show that if uh, you can improve your performance on planks and side planks, you reduce your risk for musculoskeletal injury, ACL injury, low back injury by threefold. 
So then we also use the side planks before we do all the rest of the tests because the most, the highest EMG activity in the side plank is a muscle in your hip called your glute medius. So the glute medius on the downside is uh, very, very active. And what I'm trying to do is I try to pre-fatigue the glute medius before I go to all these single limb activities. Because the way that we do the single leg activity has, uh, uh, it requires the glute medius to be very, very active to stabilize your pelvis and to stabilize your lower limb. So that comes from the position the limbs are in during the performance of the task. So the next movements that we do in order are single leg squat, then we do a single leg hop, and then we do a single leg hop plant. So they jump forwards, backwards, lateral, and medial. And then we do an ankle lunge test, which is a test to really clear <clears throat> and really to assess range of motion of the ankle, the knee, and the hip. So um, performance of those tests, there's a lot of different measures or a lot of different metrics that we're measuring um, with our new version, which we just launched in July. So our original version was launched in 2017. We've collected data on over 60,000 athletes across the U.S., uh, so we have about 90 million data points related to human movement. Based off of everything that we learned on version one, we launched version two, uh, which is called VMove Plus AMI. Um, that was released in July, and that was released in uh, the U.S., Australia, uh, U.K., Canada, and Africa. Um, in the new version, goes from 1,500 data points to over 3,500 data points. So part of that is because of what we've learned uh, in the previous version, we knew we needed to include in the second version. And the second version um, is a version that um, uses four sensors. Um, we've improved the uh, data capture. So we have much more data capture that is captured, number one. And number two um, is we've actually improved the accuracy. So now we're, instead of being 3%, within 3%, we're now within 2%. Of a Viacom system. So the beauty of it is, is that you can do that assessment in literally 15 minutes um, and have a very comprehensive report on how the athlete moves. Um, you know, people always ask me, well, gosh, you know, can you do that in mass physicals? I've got 110 football players. Like, can I actually do that with 110 football players? Well, what I'll tell you is like next week, I'm actually headed to Puget Sound and we're going to do 450 firefighters. Um, we've done uh, over 2,000 firefighters at one time, uh, so we pro we have it down that we can process about 100 uh, individuals a day uh, using using the system. We could actually process more um, if I had more people and more systems. Um, right now, we typically run about five systems, five people at a time, um, but we can run through about 100 individuals in a day. Wow. So then if, if we think about golfers here... Um, they're repeating the same movement patterns over and over and over again. Yep. Right? And, and the golf swing is very powerful. It's very fast. Mm -hmm. Takes about 1.2 seconds on average, puts a lot of stress on the body. Mm -hmm. And if a golfer doesn't have enough dynamic stability and strength throughout their body, but specifically in their spine, their mm -hmm. hips, and their shoulders, then they're more likely to become injured. Could we use the athletic movement index to test whether or not golfers have enough stability, enough strength in these areas? Absolutely. You know, so uh, stability, you know, um, one of the most predictive tests for uh, risk, for lower limb risk, 
um, is a single leg squat. And that's part of the reason that we do a single leg squat. Um, but the other thing that I'm finding is that um, one of the key measures that we do now um, is I actually quantify um, your stability of your pelvis. Um, and so, you know, the, it's interesting to me because the more, you know, I was, I, you know, when I first started out, I was so focused on the knee and then I was fo so focused on glute medius. It's like, if you had a migraine headache, your glute meat is weak, right? So, so, you know, but, 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 you know, reality is, is that it's, it's a combination of links in the chain. Um, what I find is that as dynamic valgus speeds get higher, it's typically more links in the chain that are faltering. And one of the things that, you know, I've been really uh, uh, focusing a lot of energy on is pelvic stability um, and specifically in single limb. And, you know, you know, my other passion is, is martial arts. I've been training um, mixed martial arts for almost 11 years. And one of the things that I teach students is if I can manipulate your center of mass, I can, I can take your feet out from underneath you. If I tilt your center of mass this way and I simply kick your feet that way, you're going down. And it's no different for an athlete, right? So, so one of the things that it's been, it's been an eye-opener for me from martial arts that I'm taking over to physical therapy is that as that pelvis moves, that center of mass moves. And a lot of times what we see is that when an athlete's pelvis moves and their center of mass moves, the force vector and the way the force vector hits drives the knee into a dynamic valgus position. And the force vector relates into force going through that medial aspect of their knee, through their MCL, through their meniscus, through their ACL. And so, so and, and I know you asked about golfers. So yes, I feel like there's a lot of correlation to golfers, especially with rotational stability. You know, what I see is that, um, in, and I, I do this with a lot of my combat athletes, um, is I train them for rotational stability. Because I know that if, if, if you and I are squaring up and I pull you forward, you're going to have a lot of strength. But I know as soon as I pull you at a diagonal or as soon as I pull you rotationally, mm -hmm. you're going to, it's going to break your posture. And as soon as I can break your posture, I can move you. And so, you know, just like an athlete, you got to have that rotational stability because so much of it is not this way, but so much of it is, is rotational or, or diagonal. Yeah, absolutely. That was a long-winded answer to oh, your question. And, that's, and it's, and when you're talking about, you know, measuring the stability of the spine, and I know you put sensors on the thoracic spine, you put sensors mm -hmm. on the lumbar spine and you're testing, you know, if there's any deviation yep. um, in that stability during a plank, right? And yes. that's, when you mentioned that, and that's the first thing I think of like with golfers trying to have that postural control with yeah. all that torque and force being yeah. exposed to the body that these, the test would be a great way yeah. to measure not, you know, how, how much risk the athlete is under. And you can all, you can quantify that in some yeah. way with the AMI. Is that correct? Correct. And, and let me, let me tell you something fascinating that I've learned um, is, and you won't see any studies on this. This simply comes from um, our analyzing side plank so much side plank to me is a, an immensely informative test. Okay, so starting at the foot and the ankle, um, in a side plank, your ankle should be in a neutral position. If you have weakness of your perineals and your anterior tib, what's going to happen is you're going you're gonna to supinate that foot and your tibia is going to drop down to the ground. We call it a tibial drop. 
And what we've seen is that that, move, that movement, tibial drop, is highly correlated with ankle sprains in basketball players. So if I move up the kinetic chain then, and I look at your hips, if your hips float up or float down, that gives me an indication that your glute medius on the downside is weak. On the other hand, if your hips roll posterior, okay, that tells me that your, ant, your, your transverse abdominus on the front side is not contracting enough to keep your pelvis from rotating that way. If your pelvis rotates this way, if it rotates anterior, that tells me that quadratus lumborum is not strong enough and it's not, it's not stabilizing your pelvis that way. If I go on up the chain and I look at your shoulders and your shoulders roll forward, what happens is that downward arm, that serratus anterior and the rhomboids are not strong enough to pull your scapula up against that rib cage and support you. So what ends up happening is that your, your trunk rolls forward. So the beauty of that is, is that you can go from the foot to the hips, to the spine, to the shoulder, and address a lot of issues that you see in your athletes simply by looking at a side plank. But again, that's, you know, the, 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 um, you know, part of, part of my book, that's what I get into. I get into that depth of, because if you, if you take the motion that's occurring and you look at origin insertion of muscles, um, and, you know, for your PTs out there that are, that are um, listening to this, um, what I would say is, is look at palestanga. Palestanga is functional anatomy of the musculoskeletal system. And what it does is it goes through origin insertion. It goes through uh, function in, in an open chain, but also in a closed chain. And palestanga for me was one of the foundational uh, texts that I used to really kind of break down where these movements falling apart. Um, and that's really where you can start to see like origin insertion. If you're seeing that pelvis move forward, what's lengthening? And, and, you know, if it's rolling forward, it's quadratus forum. If it's rolling backwards, it's transverse abdominis. If it's rolling forward, it's your rhomboids and your serratus anterior. So the beauty of it is, is you can look at movement now and like, okay, I can, I know how to target that. I know how to target that. I know how to target that. Yeah. And that's exactly, so like, you know, you're, you're speaking my language here. I'm a kinesiologist. So functional, yeah. uh, mechanic, yeah. you know, and, and our, I feel like, a big part of our job as movement specialists is to obviously improve the way the athletes move. And, and, um, you know, we can use mobility techniques to do that. Yeah. We can use activation exercises, neuromuscular control drills, but we have to learn how to program all of that together to create yeah. a successful intervention. Right. And that can yeah. take time. It takes experience. Can the athletic movement index improve the effectiveness or improve like the, the learning process for say, maybe 100%, some people yeah. on how to do that? Yeah. So, you know, part of what was important to me um, is, you know, there's a lot of different technologies out there and especially in the sports science world, you know, you, you've got things like, you know um, you got wearable sensors that are used in, in uh, major league soccer and football, and they, they just give you a robust amount of, of data. And what was important for me when developing the EMIs, I wanted to give the clinician clinically meaningful information. And so I wanted to give you information that you could assess somebody today and do something today that's going to impact the way that they're moving on the test. Um, what we know is that if athletes improve how they move on the EMI, we have uh, in we've shown this in some of our studies a 58.2% reduction in musculoskeletal injuries. 
But the other hand, we also have a 10% increase in power output. And that's measured via vertical jump or sprint speed. And it, and it makes a lot of sense if you look at biomechanics. Biomechanics is biomechanics. If you have bad biomechanics, the force attenuation that is imparted to the body uh, when you're jumping or running or whatever is altered. And that means that tissues are going to be worn and torn and, and tear. Um, but also, it also has an impact on kinetic energy transfer, is that the more efficiently your body moves, the better the kinetic energy transfer is, and therefore power goes up. So this is, I want to get into two things here. First, I want to get into the, the power here in a moment. But the first thing I want to get into is, is the injuries. Um, the, you know, athletes, you know, golfers specifically, they put a lot of time into their game. Um, and when any athlete gets injured, it's, it's devastating, but especially yeah. if it happens during the season, right? If you're going to get injured, you'd rather get injured, you know, in the offseason, sure. of course. And, you know, golfers before the season starts, they have these goals they want to accomplish. And so, if their season gets shut down because of an injury, it's so demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, with, with my clients and, and with my inner circle, we do a lot of neuromuscular control training to improve movement quality and, and reduce injury risk. If a golfer improves their performance on the athletic movement index, would that mean that they're less likely to become injured during the season? So, so I have, I, obviously that's not a population that I've done the movement index with um, a lot. That being said, what I do know uh, from what I've seen across all sports, military population, police officers, firefighters, it reduces risk. So it, I would 100% uh, expect that there is an improvement, not only in performance, but also injury risk. Um, and, a, and a part of that goes to the fact that there's a push with the EMI for not only symmetry between the right side and the left side, but also quality between the right side and left side. And, you know, you know, with, with uh, one side dominant sports like baseball pitchers, right? So you, you anticipate that a baseball pitcher is going to have more external rotation on their throwing arm. But what we know is that if you measure total shoulder range of motion, uh, 90 degrees internal, ex, uh, internal and external rotation, that if there is greater than a 10 degree difference between your right side and your left side, you're at a, at a threefold increased risk of a labral tear in your shoulder. So despite the fact that you have more external rotation, what the study shows that for every degree of external rotation you get, you lose a degree of internal rotation. Therefore, there should still be symmetry between the right side and the left side. Matter of fact, some teams feel so strongly about that, that if they see that uh, variance be, uh, in, in uh, physicals, uh, preseason physicals, they will not let them pitch until they've corrected that. Now, that being said, you see that across the board. Matter of fact, there was a study published um, by Dr. Andrews looking at golfers uh, in hip range of motion and found a very similar uh, correlation to hip range of motion and symmetry of hip motion. Because again, internal and external rotation, total internal and external rotation should be equal to the opposite side. And if there's not that symmetry, then you increase in, in that particular study, it was increased risk for labral tears in the hip. 
I I have found that 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 10% rule pretty much applies to anywhere in the body. So, you know, if if you've got greater than a a 10 degree difference in ankle range of motion, you're at a much greater risk. There's studies that show that, you know, and and it's interesting to me because it seems like the body wants to be symmetrical. No matter what sport you do, the body wants to be symmetrical. And so um, I, I honestly feel that if you can create some symmetry and quality uh, symmetry between right side and left side, not only is it going to help your golf game, but it's also going to uh, mitigate your risk. I don't say eliminate your risk um, because, you know, how do you prevent something that's never happened? So I always say mitigate your risk. Um, I think it would definitely mitigate your risk for injury. Yeah. And that's kind of the language that, you know, we've been moving away from as well is, is we're trying to reduce the risk of injury. Like your people, athletes are going to get injured and, you know, we're just trying to reduce the risk with the performance enhancement here. um, Pretty much every sport uses the vertical jump test as a measure of power. And it's not, you know, it's not a perfect test uh, because it doesn't take into consideration the athlete's body weight, but it's still a really good test. And in golf, we've actually found that vertical jump height is one of the best predictors of potential swing speed. So if a golfer increased their vertical jump height, they'll potentially increase their swing speed and hit the ball farther. So then if an athlete improves their performance on the athletic movement index, will that increase their vertical jump? So we have seen stuff. Yes, we have seen uh, improvements both in vertical jump and sprint speed. Now, here's what I will tell you. We have a new version that will probably not come out for another six to nine months um, that will um, actually have power output right versus left. So part of part of the reason I'm doing that is I, I have anecdotally seen that there is a LSI for power output. And that if there is a uh, two things that I've seen about power, number one is if there's if there's greater output on one side versus the other, that's going to set you up for a problem. But the other thing is power over time. So one of the things that we measure is your power from rep one to rep 10. And I'm convinced that if your if your power drops off by X and it doesn't drop off on the other side by X and it only drops by Y, and there's right. that huge variance between the drop off of power, I think that's a huge risk factor. You know, and it would in in you and I, it makes sense, right? Because you know, the athletes running down the field and then all of a sudden they're they're gassed on one side versus the other side, that's gonna put you at risk, right? Um, but think about what that does for power output. So the beauty of it is um is what we've been able to do with the EMI is there's actually a physics formula that combines your body weight and your flight time. Um, and we actually c- capture your flight time with the AMI, with the sensors that we use. Oh, wow. And I also I also record what your body weight is. So by having both your body weight and your flight time, I'm able to figure out what your, your uh, power output is for that particular uh, movement. That being said, we're validating that in the lab right now. So it's going to be a little while before that's released. But I firmly believe that when we have that, that we can start testing out some of these theories that I have about power output, um, both both by power variance right side to left side as an average, but also power over time and the degradation of power. Because I think that if you if your power degrades a certain amount, it's going to put you at a higher risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
one of the things that, you know, I talk about movement quite a bit and <laughs> I'm loving this conversation here. People reach out to me all the time because I talk about, you know, trying to improve the efficiency of movement, trying to reduce compensatory movement patterns. And I have people reach out to me quite a bit asking me, like, what do you mean when you say an athlete moves efficiently? Or what do you mean when you say an athlete compensates when they move? Yeah. How would you answer those questions? Yeah. So, you know, one of the easiest movements to see for compensation for me on the AMI um, is what we call lateral shift. So if I, if, and you're squatting, if I took a plumb line, dropped it right down the center of you, when you squat, your hips should remain equal distance from that plumb line. If not, you're shifting your weight one way or you're shifting weight your other way. And one of the compensations that we see, especially after an ACL reconstruction, athletes shift their weight away from their opposite side. The sad part is, is that if you don't correct that lateral shift, that can, can, that can continue two to three years post, post-surgical. I've seen athletes who have been uh, returned back to uh, division one football who are in the weight room squatting 350 pounds with a massive lateral shift. And think about what that does for the loads on the facet joints. Think about what it does for the loads on the hip, the knee, the ankle, et cetera. But also think about the, the strength uh, difference that it creates. If you're, if you're shifting over, in, in some instances, I've seen people shift as much as three inches to one side. Think about what that does from a strength perceptive pers- perspective. Your right quad will never, ever be as strong as your left quad because you not only do that when you squat, but you do it when you sit on the bed, you do it when you sit on the commode, you do it when you get in and out of your car, you do it every single time that you squat. And that is thousands and thousands of reps that you've trained one side more than the other side. So you have to balance that out. So to me, that's a huge compensatory strategy that quite honestly, is, is easily corrected. Uh, once it's, once it's, when it's, once it's a assessed, um, and then educating people about it. So for, for your physical therapists out there, I call it lateral shift. You know, we've been measuring this really since about 2008, what the literature calls it, it was first published in about 2012 and it's called lateral displacement of the pelvis during a squatting motion. Um, that's the term that's used in the literature. You know, and this gets me thinking, because I've had people, and I'm sure you've had people too, and you know, if there's people who work in sports medicine listening, pain causes reflexive changes in motor unit recruitment, right? And yeah. so after somebody's been injured, they quite often will move differently. Yep. And they may not have that much pain anymore. Sometimes they have like these lingering problems. And I've found that if you improve their movement, quite often the pain will go away. Yeah. So Thomas, I've got something really fascinating for you. So one of the, one of the things that we're doing right now, are you familiar with the TSK 11? Yes. It's a, it, okay. So the TSK for the listeners, TSK 11 is Tampa scale for kinesiophobia 11 form. It's often used after ACL reconstruction. Um, it measures kinesiophobia or fear of movement. <clears throat> and the studies show that if you score 19 or greater on the TSK 11, you're 13 times more likely to re-injure your knee upon return to play. 
So one of the things that we do is we incorporate the TSK-11 as a part of our assessment, especially with our ACL reconstructions. And one of the things that we've seen is that when people have high levels of kinesiophobia, they also have a significant lateral shift. We also see that they have uh, more dynamic valgus and their speed of dynamic valgus is greater. And what we've also seen is that when you correct a lateral shift and when you improve their dynamic valgus and you improve the speed of their dynamic valgus, that their kinesiophobia, for, their kinesiophobia scores also go down. So one of the things that we're trying to do right now is we're trying to correlate on the AMI, are there specific movements that are correlated to specific questions on the TSK-11? My goal being is that an orthopedic surgeon could then do a TSK-11 and say, okay, now because you scored poorly on this particular question, I know you need to work on single leg squats, and here's three exercises you need to do to improve that. So you could basically just ask a question get the response and know three or four exercises you have to do to correct that response. That's, I was going to ask you about artificial intelligence and, and computer yeah. modeling, but sometimes simple ways are better, right? right. And so I just right. think the questionnaire is probably more simple than having yeah. you know, artificial intelligence involved. So yeah, to be able to match that with the questionnaire would be um, huge game changer. Oh, oh my absolutely. God. A game changer for orthopedic surgeons. Can you imagine? Because, oh. because now, you know, like if you ask this, these 11 questions, like, holy cow, like I can know from this that you need to do some more single leg squats and here's four things you need to do. Yeah. Have you thought about adding, um, computer, computer modeling with it or artificial intelligence? Yeah, we have to get to a certain point of of data uh, capture in order to do that. Um, you know, with the new version, um, you know, you, you basically start over um, because before we didn't capture pelvic motion. So now we're adding in pelvic data to that. We're adding in a lot of other metrics to it as well. Like, you know, before we got your sport and your age, now we get your sport, your age, your position, the years that you've been playing. So all those different factors, which also play into movement. Um, <clears throat> in addition, uh, we'll be adding power, obviously, to that. We'll also be uh, adding um, the speed at which your pelvis falls. Once we have all of those key components uh, in the equation, then what we can start doing is start breaking it down because what we know is that a 16-year-old female soccer player moves differently than a 16-year-old lineman who moves differently than a 16-year-old running back. And what puts one at risk versus another at risk versus another at risk, we don't know what that is yet. But eventually my goal is that we'll be able to determine what normative values are for each of those populations by sport, by position, by age, by level, you know, a division one player moves differently than a division two player. Yeah. So by even uh, level of play. Well, I think you've got, you know, you've certainly got the, my attention. Um, and as you know, like, I'm a big fan of the research that you've done. I'm a big fan of your, your methodology um, for the golfers listening, or maybe the golf coaches that don't have the same sort of understanding about you sure. know, biomechanics and all that, that, that we do. Can you explain to them, you know, a lot of them are dealing with chronic injuries that kind of just nag them all the time. Can you explain how poor movement quality just feeds these chronic injuries? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, the, the, um, the beauty of biomechanics um, is that it affects how your body 
attenuates force. Um, and so if you, if you are, um, it, you know, for example, um, if every time you take a step because your glute medius is weak and your hips do this, um, that causes your spine to side bend. And let's say you got an L5-S1 issue, right? And, and it's kind of this, just this nagging issue and it really flares up when you play golf, but it really is pre preemptively irritated because you have a weak glute and you're doing all these steps, which is constantly irritating it as you're walking. And then you go and you play golf, which kind of takes it up to the next level. So, you know, uh, correcting how someone moves, one, you allow the tissues to heal. You allow the tissues to recuperate so that when you go do strenuous activities like golf or whatever your sport is, right? You know, it's, it's simply... When injuries occur, as you know, when injuries occur, you're outpacing the body's ability to heal. For some reason, you're outpacing the body's uh, ability to heal. And you've got to determine what is it that's, that's, that's that factor that's preventing the body from healing, what's not allowing it to recover. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things that, that I think we don't do or talk about enough is recovery you know, the importance of recovery, you know, I, I, um, I'm huge on, uh, Norma tech compression sleeves. I'm huge on, uh, hypervolts. I'm huge on plunge tanks. You know, there's some amazing research coming out about plunge tanks. Um, I'm huge on class four laser. Um, you know, a lot of these things that we use from a recovery standpoint to really push recovery to the next, next step, um, to allow our, our athletes to, you know, take it up to the next level, you know, and for me, you know, the population I'm dealing with is mixed martial arts. We're right now in the middle of competition season. So I have guys that are training martial arts five days a week. And then on Saturday, they go and compete in a, in a, in a competition where a round one fight is 10 minutes long, no rest. And you may have four or five fights in a competition. And then you're coming back to the gym on Monday and you're training again so that you can compete again on Saturday. So recovery is huge. So, you know, leveraging those recovery tools, but then, and then on top of that is throwing in like at the end of the day, our body is a nothing but a walking chemical reaction. And if you're not putting the proper fuel into the system, how can you possibly expect it to recover to its maximal effect? I think we talked a little bit about that in the BFR piece, but I'm huge on, you know, making sure that you're hydrated, making sure that you have uh, your positive uh, net protein balance, making sure you're doing things like fulvic acid and your magnesium and your zinc and your vitamin C to help that recovery process. Because if you're not doing that, then your body's starving for it and it's just going to wear tissue down. Yeah. And you know, and it's, this is something that as, as you know, as well as coming out in, in shoulder and knee research quite a bit now is the importance of lifestyle factors. Like they're the deal breaker in rehab. And we wonder sometimes, oh my God. like I've had people, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day following the, the, the protocol. He's following it very diligently, went through the programming really, really diligently. He's, not, he's doing a good job. Okay. How's your sleep? No good. It's like, well, that's probably one of the main factors why you're not yeah. getting recovery that you want. Right. You know, so, so, you know, lack of sleep, cortisol levels go up, testosterone and growth hormone goes down. 
What do you need to heal? Growth hormone and testosterone, right? So that's 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 one piece of it. You know, the the other thing is too, you talk about lifestyle. You know, there's some really good studies out there on rotator cuff repairs and smoking. You know, yeah. you add you add six weeks to healing if you're a chronic smoker, six weeks to healing the tissue if you're a chronic smoker. Now there's not there's not a lot of studies on the effect of chewing tobacco, but what I do know is that if you chew tobacco, there's also a com uh, the the nicotine combines to the same receptor, and therefore it also has an impact on the healing process. So lifestyle lifestyle is huge. You know whether it's sleeping, it's smoking, it's drinking, it's you know you can't expect to uh, compete like an athlete if you eat like a junkie. <laughs> you can't do it. I'm sorry. It's just not yeah. possible. So one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit here um, recently, um, and it's coming out in the literature suggesting that maybe ice might not be so good for recovery. And so I've experimented with taking the ice pack away from some, from some people but I feel like they're responding better to ice. Now, I don't know if that's just me anecdotally yeah. or, or yeah. that population. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? You know, it's funny because uh, back in the 90s, this whole thing came around. And then again, in, in like 2010, this thing came around. And um, what I will tell you is in professional sports, it has not changed. You come off the field uh, throwing in Major League Baseball, they're going to ice your shoulder. Why? Because they know that it helps the inflammatory process. And you throw on top of that all the stuff coming out about cold plunge um, and the impact of cold plunges on both performance and recovery. To me, you know, I, you know, I, I will, I will listen to people talk their game when they talk about don't use ice. And I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm 54 years old. You know, I, I weight train, I, I, you know, train uh, martial arts. My body is constantly under fire. Um, and I know that if, if I've got an injury that I feel like is coming on, I hit it with ice three or four days in a row and I'm, I'm feeling better. So you're a fan of cold showers. Oh, yeah. 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 And, about, and, and have you seen the cold plunge? That is, that, that there's, yeah, there's some really good research on that. I found, cause I do the cold shower as well. And, and not only does it help with uh, injuries, but I find with motivation even. Yeah, like, invigorates you. Oh, absolutely. It yeah. puts you in a good mood. Uh, I can't think of any negative um, part to it at all. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, collagen and vitamin C? Yeah, you know, um, to be honest with you, I use, uh, I actually tell athletes, especially ACL reconstructed athletes to superdose vitamin C before and after surgery. Um, and in, in my thought process around that is that, you know, when you go to the surgery, it's like you've been traumatized. Um, and what we know with that kind of trauma is that your immune system kind of drops, right? And so by boosting your vitamin C, you're going to boost your immune system um, both pre-surgically and post-surgically. So I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of vitamin C pre, especially pre-operatively and post-operatively, because I think it's so critical too, you know, because a lot of times if you come off, we all know that if, if you are, if you exercise too much, right, you suppress your immune system and it makes you more susceptible to colds. It's no different than if you've had surgery, 
If you have surgery, your immune system is suppressed and you're more susceptible to colds, especially during cold and flu season, you know? So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of vitamin C and super dosing vitamin C before surgery. You know, I think vitamin D, I think magnesium, um, zinc, um, you know, a lot of the things that we don't typically think about, fulvic acid. Um, I was first introduced to fulvic acid um, by a buddy of mine that does a lot of work in the UFC and they use it a lot for recovery. Um, when I, I had a pretty significant injury a couple of years ago, um, which quite honestly, you know, I had a massive knee injury. I had a, 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 a hand fracture. I had a neuropraxia resulting in 80% uh, strength loss in my right upper extremity all at the same time. Historically, the age I am and, and the sport I'm in would probably be a 12-month return to sport. Um, I was back on the on the mats at four months. Um, and and I'm, I'm a firm believer that had to do because I, I started BFR right away, but I was also pushing my hydration, pushing my nutrition really hard, making sure I was getting my fulvic acid, making sure I was getting all those other things to just try to boost my system as absolutely as much as possible. I want to talk about uh, movement screens here. This is a, this is yeah. a pretty hot topic in our field in general, Sure, a hot topic in golf. Um, a lot of people rely quite heavily on the TPI, which is yep. uh, uh, made from the FMS, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the TPI uh, movement screen. I don't think it does a very good job. I know Dan Coglin, who works with the DP World Tour, he feels the same way I do. What are your thoughts on FMS? And I don't know, you probably don't know much about TPI, but the FMS in general. Yeah. So, you know, uh, again, you know, I, one thing I'll say about the FMS is that it opened our eyes to movement. Um, you know, it was probably the first, it was the first assessment out there um, that really kind of opened our eyes to really assess how an athlete moves um, and, and provided some way to subjectively, objectively uh, measure uh, human movement. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about some flaws with the FMS. Number one, it does not measure the number one risk factor for lower extremity injuries, and that is dynamic valgus. There is no measure on the FMS for dynamic valgus. Number two is there is a problem with the sensitivity of the test because you are scoring on zero to three scale, right? And what happens is that you're scored on the performance of the worst movement of the three. So if you improve your performance on rep one and two, but not on rep three, you literally increased or improved 66%, but the score does not reflect that. So any test of which you can prove 66% and still not be reflected in the score is a problem. So there's a huge sensitivity to that because it is because it's only scored zero to three. Um, what you need is you need a wider range of scoring uh, methodology. The third major flaw that I see with it is that it's too subjective. You could have three people training the FMS, all score the same individual athlete and come up with three completely different scores. And number four is that an athlete can literally improve their score. Studies have shown that when an athlete is uh, aware of what they're going to be doing, um, and they know what movements they're going to be doing, they can actually improve their performance on those particular tests. 
All of that said, there's a lot of research out there. Matter of fact, the uh, Bushman study is the one that I always cite that was published back in 2016 um, with over 1,500 uh, military personnel. Um, and what they found is that the uh, it's called the area under the curve. Okay, when you have your bell curve, the area under the curve was so great that the positive predictive value of the M FMS was so poor that what ended up happening is that they were grading people at risk who weren't at risk. And then they were also grading people that weren't at risk that were at risk. And so the Bushman authors of that Bushman study actually uh, said that if you're gonna be using this for assessing military personnel, you had better be doing it with a big degree of caution. So, so, you know, again, I don't want to have hash on the FMS, but what I will tell you is there are multiple studies out there that shows that the positive predictive value for the FMS is very poor. Now that said, you know, the, the AMI, the reason that the number one, uh, one of the, the, one of the criteria that is graded the hardest is dynamic valgus but not just dynamic valgus, but the speed at which dynamic valgus occurs. So the EMI was actually the first test to actually measure the speed of dynamic valgus. Because what we know is that if you were to stand up right now and you were to move your knee into 20 degrees of dynamic valgus, probably wouldn't hurt you. But if you did that at 250 degrees per second, you might tear something. And so what we know is that by the force equation, by torque equation, both of those which, which have impact on tissue, force and torque, is that both of them have a speed component to it. So the higher the speed goes, the greater the torque, the greater the force, which means the greater the, the stress imparted to the tissue at which you're measuring. So, so the FMS is, you know, again, it was, it was a good tool. Uh, it's, it, it was a good tool to start the process. Um, but I think if you're using it as a tool to measure risk, I think you're you're probably uh, it's a dis, you're probably doing a disservice to the athlete um, because there are no studies right now, and and it's been re and re and republished um, that it is a very low positive predictive value for risk. I want to get into the the literature that you have supporting the AMI because I think yeah. that's the that's what I find uh, so useful about the AMI, the Athletic Movement Index, is we actually do have a lot of research that showing that it's helpful. Maybe yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, so you know the AMI was developed um, from a review of over fourteen hundred uh, literature uh, papers. Um, and really trying to break down which movements are the most predictive uh, for musculoskeletal injury. Um, you know, um, you know the, the planks and the side planks, for example, you know, there was two really good studies recently, DeBlazier uh, and Jong, American Journal of Sports Medicine. I believe both of those were in 2020, um, which showed that those, those two movements alone um, if you perform poorly on those, you're three times more likely to suffer a back injury and a knee injury. So the plank and the side plank are really good tests. You know, if you look at the squatting motion and what we're looking at with the squatting motion, you can go as far back as Greg Myers. And I don't know if you follow any of his work, but, you know, he's a, 
He's a, a PhD biomechanist, but he was also a strength guy. Um, he's also a physical therapist. Um, and part of the reason I followed a lot of his research is because he approached it from more of a strength and conditioning perspective. And, you know, if you look back at some of his original work is that the efficiency of a squat adds right to uh, improvement of force output, uh, force generation. Um, but more importantly is recent papers are starting to show that this lateral displacement of the pelvis during the squatting motion also has a huge impact on how force is attenuated through the lower extremity. So again, squat, and that's why we measure lateral shift. Um, single leg squat, single leg hop, hop plant. The reason that we look at those is that if you go into um, even the earliest studies uh, done by Tim Hewitt, you know, um, uh, he will tell you, matter of fact, I was in a conference uh, probably about four or five years ago uh, with Mayo Sports Medicine, and he uh, presented, uh, it was an ACL consortium meeting, and he presented the number one most predictive test for ACL risk is an, a, a single leg squat and uh, the stability during a single leg squat. And there's so much that is, that is, that is told from a single leg squat alone. You know, besides the pelvic motion, besides the control and the stability of your knee and your ankle, um, one of the other things that's told, like a single leg hop, one of the measures that we know is associated with risk is when you jump up in the air and you land, there's a, there's a timer that starts. And the more you do this, the more you hop from that first plant to multiple hops, what you see is the longer that time frame is from the first one to the time to stability, it's called time to stability. The longer that time to stability, the greater risk you're at. We've also seen that the greater distance that you cover during that, the greater risk you're at because it's a loss of balance. What happens is that the athlete jumps up, their pelvis drops like this, their center of mass goes that way, and then you're chasing your center of mass, Yeah. right? Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that when you start chasing your center of mass is that your limb moves into this dynamic valgus position and it's, you know, sets you up for, for a rest again. So where can people learn more about the athletic movement index, uh, physical therapists listening, people who yeah. sports medicine, where can they learn more? Yeah. You know, um, uh, they can go to my YouTube channel. Um, I've got a lot of um, uh, sports medicine conferences that I've spoken at. Um I did one um, just last year for uh, the Denver Broncos and the Denver um, uh, Athletic Trainers Association um, that I've put on there. I've got um, different conferences that I've done on concussion and lower extremity risk. Um, I've got ones on, you know, uh, specifically on the movements of the EMI. What is the literature that supports each one of those movements um, and what is it telling you? So I've I've got a lot of educational videos on there. Um, they can also go to my book. You know, my book, I, you know, uh, chapter by chapter uh, cover all the research that's related to the AMI. I cover all of the, the movements. What do the movements tell you? Um, what are the deviations? What do those deviations tell you? And most importantly, what do you do from a training perspective to improve those movements? Seems like it would also help our coaching as well. Hundred percent. I, I, I totally agree. You know the the um, because again, what I what I it, like we talked about with the side plank. Like, there's so much there that you could literally start addressing with some simple exercise. You know, 
Well, thank you so much, Trent. I appreciate you you coming on. And like I said, you're the first returning guest. So this is a, that's a, a awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I, I feel honored to be the first returning. Well, thank you very much, Trent.